The Appendix N Podcast, Episode 1, A Princess of Mars, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. In this show, we talk about the stories and authors that inspired Dungeons and Dragons. In the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide, published 1979, Gary Gygax listed his favorite fantasy authors and suggested they be inspirational reading for anyone who wanted to run a Dungeons & Dragons campaign. Some of these authors and their creations are well-known, like H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, and J.R.R. Tolkien. But many of these authors have long been forgotten by fans of fantasy literature and fantasy gaming. And even if you are the geekiest of geeks, the nerdiest of nerds, well, people are reading less these days. Maybe they don't have the time, maybe they don't have the interest. Some of these ancient tomes can be pretty dry and dusty to the modern reader. But these books should not be forgotten. They form the foundation of our hobby. And since Dungeons & Dragons has inspired countless creators of film and video games since 1974, it's fair to say that these books form the foundation of much of gaming and popular culture. Every month on this show, we will read a book and talk about it. We will review the story, talk about what it means for modern audiences, and how it relates to Dungeons & Dragons. If you would like to be a part of the show... You can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. At the end of every episode, I will mention what book we're going to read next, so listen for that. Uh, disclaimer, I am in no way a professional. I played a little D&D starting with 2nd edition, uh, but I didn't play seriously with dedicated groups until 3rd. Uh, I have not read most of the authors on this list, so I am learning as I go. Uh, My research, if it can be called that, before each show basically consists of reading the book and then looking up the author on Wikipedia. There are no prerequisites to being a guest on my show other than having a love of Dungeons & Dragons and a love of reading. So let's get to it. I recorded this intro separately from what you're about to hear, so you may hear me repeat some of this information with my guest. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. My pick for this episode is a book entitled Mars, a setting for the Savage Worlds role-playing game written by Cubicle 7. You can find it for $24.95 at noblenight.com. Welcome to Episode 1 of the Appendix N Podcast, the show where we discuss Gary Gygax's list of inspirations for the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. Uh, I am your host, Jeffrey Wynn, and with me tonight is Mr. Jay Kent. Jay, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, Sure, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, Just along for the ride, I guess I'm your first guest host. But yeah, really looking forward to it. I love the Appendix N books, uh, have read most of them, and I'm looking forward to our discussion tonight. 
All right. Well, hopefully Jay will be the first in in a series of many guests to come. And if you would like to be a guest on the Appendix N podcast, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. And there will be more about upcoming books in our series at, at the end of the show. So be, uh, be sure to stay tuned and listen for that. All right. So before we, we, we uh, press on, since this is the first episode, I want to introduce what the Appendix N podcast is all about. As many of you may know, if you are aficionados of the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game, the creator of the game, Gary Gygax, wrote a, a list of his inspirations in the back of, I believe it, it was it was the Player's Guide uh, for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition. Actually, and it was the DM's Guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide, all right. And he titled it Appendix N, presumably because there were appendixes A through M before it about a variety of topics. But those appendixes are forgotten, and we remember Appendix N. And so most of the writers on this list are not known to modern fans of Dungeons & Dragons, including myself. I I have not read most of them. And um, I decided that I was going to read them all. And I wanted to start a show and a, and a book club so I could get people reading them with me and we could, we could talk about them. So the, the, the plan going forward is to do a book, uh, a book per episode. I'm going in chronological order of when they were published. And it just so happens that Edgar Rice Burroughs, A Princess of Mars, is the first on that list. Uh, we're going to do many, many books, many, many authors. It's, it's going to be... Um, a fun time and I hope you'll enjoy it with me. <laughs> so a uh, question, Jeff, you, you know, I'm looking, I have a copy of the DMG here and I'm going, I'm looking at the appendix N, which is, as you said, entitled inspirational and educational reading, mm. which, uh, and I, that's an interesting way to do it. I, the chronological order, I, I kind of like that. It's not obviously not alphabetical order, right? but you know, there are some books in, or I should say it's mostly with a list of authors and one or two sample titles. But say, take for uh, take for instance, Andre Norton, who is on the list. There are no books titles given. Now, obviously, she had uh, her most famous was Quad Keep, at least as far as inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and also things like Fred Saberhagen, who uh, has the Sword series. Are you going to do all of those books in that series, even though they're not listed in the appendix? Jay, or, you are you are obviously a lot more knowledgeable about all these authors than am I. I am I am learning as I go. Uh, the first thing I did was I, I I sat down and I listed all of all of the the authors by uh, date of date of birth, and then I started looking up their their uh, various works and listing those by uh, date of date of publication. Um, now, for for those authors where specific works are are named, I'm going to focus on those works. Uh, I, I certainly don't have time to review every single uh, book by every single author. Some of these authors are quite prolific. True. Um, for for authors where where no uh, single work is is uh, named, I'm just going to focus on their their most their most famous and well well known works uh, that 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 my research uh, can find. Such as um, the focus of our next episode, uh, which is going to be uh, Lord uh, Dunsany's Book of Book of Wonders. Uh, Gary Gygax does not list any any works f- 
for, for Lord Dunsany, so I, I looked him up and I saw that uh, the Book of Wonders and the King of Elfland's Daughter are his most famous works, so that's what I'm going to read, and that's that's what we're, we're going to do uh, shows on. Sounds um, like a good... Sounds like a good way to approach it. Uh, if you know, if if the show goes on and I, I get a a stable of regular guests who who have suggestions for uh, you know specific things that, that I should read that might not uh, uh, occur to me, I I might change up the uh, schedule of of the show for a bit. We'll we'll just see uh, we'll just see how this show catches on. Well, it's off to a great start, I think. Princess of Mars is a great book. Thank you. I think so too. All right. Um, so Gary Gygax lists for Edgar Rice Burroughs. He lists the the Pellucidar series, the Mars series, and the Venus series, and we're going to touch on all three of those in in upcoming episodes of this show. Uh, but today we are we are reading uh, a Princess of, of Mars, the 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 first um, the first story ever written by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And uh, the first in his in his Mars series, uh, starring uh, John Carter, uh, gentleman of Virginia. Uh, before we jump into the book itself, uh, I'm going to uh, give a, a brief uh, biography of Mr. Burroughs. Uh, he was born in uh, 1875 in Chicago, uh, the fourth son of a businessman and Civil War veteran. Uh, he tried to enlist in the military. Uh, but was uh, discharged due to a heart problem. Uh, after this, he, he drifted around, worked for his father's business. He did various jobs in Idaho, Chicago, uh, got married somewhere during that time. Uh, during his, his many wanderings, he had contact with miners, soldiers, cowboys, and American Indians. Uh, finally, he began to write fiction in 1911, uh, when he was working a particularly unsatisfying job. I think he was working for his brother at the time. Uh, but he thought that the stories in Pulp Fictions were uh, rot, as he called them, and uh, he thought that he could uh, write better stories, even though he had never actually written anything previously. Um, it's that, That's as far as, as we're going to go um, for now. Uh, because we'll be coming back to Burroughs later. I will mention that um, he, he's also known in, in World War II that he uh, actually uh, became a war correspondent. Uh, and and he, he was one of the oldest uh, correspondents, one, one, of the, one of the oldest U.S. correspondents during, uh, during the war. Clearly, we can, we can, we can see that uh, Burroughs was, was no, no stranger to uh, warfare. Uh, he, he, he had an interest in it. He was, he was maybe not uh, as, as physically fit as, as he would uh, like to be. And maybe that uh, fueled some of, some of the fantasy that we see in John Carter of Mars. Now, A Princess of Mars was Burroughs' first story. Uh, and it was published as a serial in The All Story, a monthly pulp magazine published by Frank Muncy. Uh, who also published the Argosy, which is considered by Wikipedia, source of all knowledge, to be the first American pulp magazine. Uh, at the time, uh, Burroughs thought his own story was rather childish and outlandish, uh, and he did not wish to be associated associated with it, so he used uh, the pen name Normal Bean uh, to indicate that uh, he was a normal man, which got edited to uh, Norman Bean, I believe, in the final publication. Yeah, that's what that's that's what the, that's what happened. The the guy, one of the typesetters, thought it was a typo. They thought they'd put the wrong uh, letter in there, and of course, um, they put the N in. 
So we we know that um, Burroughs was was not taking this story uh, entirely too seriously when when he was writing it. He was he was he was writing it to make make money. So he was writing what he thought people wanted to read at the time, not necessarily what he he wanted to write. Um, but it you know we 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 know what happened. It turned out to be a great success, and he went on to create his most famous creation, Tarzan, uh, later. And he wrote many, many books and is still a famous household name to this day. And they just, Disney just recently made a, made a movie about John Carter of Mars, which I have not seen. That just goes to show that, that Burroughs' legacy lives on, lives on to this day. And it inspired Gary Gygax in his creation of Dungeons and Dragons. It's, it's also went on to inspire such science fiction authors as Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, and Carl, Carl Sagan. So we are starting this this podcast with with someone who is who is truly an illuminary in the in the fantasy genre. Now it's it's worth saying that John Carter of Mars, or I mean the the Mars series, is not science fiction. It is uh, Wikipedia, the source of all knowledge, uh, categorizes it as planetary romance, uh, or I like to call it sword and laser, or or sword and sword and planet. Mm. Uh, because it's it's primarily uh, fantasy. There's it, it it doesn't really focus on the science aspect. There's it, it's 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 a tall tale, uh, full of impossible, amazing things. And it it he, and Burroughs doesn't really dwell on 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 the science too much. So the science is just a form of magic, apparently. Is that what- I I'd say it's a it's a story more about the the. It's 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 primarily an an ad, adventure story, whereas whereas science fiction is is a story is 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 fiction about how how science. Man, I should research this if I'm going to do a show on this. <laughs> oh, you're doing great, actually. You're you're doing fine. I mean, you're talking about. You're right. It's definitely not hard science fiction. I what mean, would, uh... what would you say that say the uh, definition of of science fiction is? Well, I science fiction. I think you could consider um, Edgar Rice Burroughs as you know science fiction, or the Marge series. Uh, in the in the same vein, you could say Jules Verne is science fiction. Obviously, you know Jules Verne at the time he was writing, scientific knowledge was extremely limited compared to what we know today. But you know he wrote based on what he knew, and you know as you have said, Wikipedia, the uh, fount of all knowledge, is I guess their tagline has come to be on the show. The um, he based his understanding of Mars, he based his, his story of Mars based on what they understood from the astronomy of the time, which, you know, obviously is very flawed compared to what we know now. But, you know, the, the canals and the, 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 the fact that Mars was a dying planet, speculation by some astronomers that what actually had happened, uh, not necessarily that life had had lived, but that Mars had one time been an Earth-like planet that had, you know, drifted out of orbit and things like that, and therefore had you know succumbed to to its current condition. Um, you know, that was a popular theory at the time. Obviously, you know, we know now that that is not the case, and that there is absolutely no breathable atmosphere, and that you know, even the existence of water. Was Speculative is not nearly as concrete as we once believed it was on Mars. 
and and you are you are correct about that jay uh in fact burroughs um burroughs based his his mars uh mostly as far as we can tell on the writings of a man named percival uh, lowell who published a book entitled mars in 1895 uh which as as you uh described it he he described uh, mars as an as an arid uh dying planet with with uh uh canals uh the term canals actually comes from an italian astronomer giovanni sharapelli who in 1877 observed geological features on mars which he called canali which is an italian for channels and not a fantastic dessert <laughs> So he so he he called them channels, which was mistranslated into English as canals, uh, which are watercourses, and so this this fueled the uh, imagination of uh, lay people for for uh, some time to come. Okay, so that's the background of the story. Um, let's get into the book itself. Let's 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 start with our with our main character. Who who is John Carter? That's a great question. Why don't you tell us, Jeff? Um, well, from the very beginning, we don't really know a lot about John Carter. Um, Burroughs introduces himself in the in the in the prologue of the book as Carter's uh, nephew, and and he's sort of of presenting uh, this man's story to us. Uh, Carter starts the, the 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 story by by saying that he doesn't know how old he is. That as far as he can remember, he's always been a man of about thirty. Uh, and when we, when we first meet him, he's fighting the civil war for the Confederates and the war, the war ends and he decides to become a prospector in, in Arizona. And, uh, he, he and his, uh, his, his, uh, companion run afoul of some Indians. And then all of a sudden he gets transported to Mars and very very little of the beginning of of the story uh makes makes any any kind of sense and it's it's not very well elaborated upon as as, as far as i know later um we're, we're we're never told uh why john carter is seemingly uh immortal why he can't remember a a childhood um he 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 gets to mars when he's uh, cornered in a in a in a cave after after being chased by by some Indians, he just stumbles into this cave and falls over. And we we learn later that there's some kind of witch, I guess, hiding out in the back of this cave. But we don't we don't learn that until like the very end of end of the book. And he's just he's just lying in this dark cave, and he he begins to have this out of body. Experience. He 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 gets up, and he's naked, and his body's lying underneath him. And the Indians come along, and they're scared off by the witch. And John Carter just kind of stumbles outside, and looks up into the sky and and wishes that he were on Mars. And then he's on Mars. Does that does that does that make any sense to you? No, but you know I. I... As with, uh, you know, well, we touched upon it earlier, it's definitely not hard science fiction. There are many, many things that, that Edgar Rice Burroughs will play along with. Um, I, I really like the fact that uh, John Carter is, is pretty much a, he, he's an everyman 
he, he's an everyman's ideal, you might say. I mean, mm-hmm. at least by early 20th century standards. You know, he's, he's, he's a renaissance man. I mean, you're right in the sense he does cut a mysterious figure via his past. And, you know, he may potentially be some sort of, you know, who knows what, uh, you know, alpha, mutant, demigod, whatever he is because of these, you know, his lack of memories. But at the same time, um, while Edgar Rice Burroughs certainly cuts him as a romantic figure, you know, the guy from Virginia, you know, he's a Southern gentleman. He is as close to American aristocracy as we might expect. But, you know, at the same time, we see even very early when he's, you know, confronting the Apaches and he, or he's, you know, chasing them down. He is very uh, human, you might say. He's, he's vulnerable. He's, you know, definitely able to be killed. And uh, he fears for his life on a number of occasions. So, you know, say in contrast to... Mm-hmm. You know some of the you know the Greek heroes, which I mean I know we're not trying to be theoretical here. We're trying to be an entertaining podcast and not trying to be a class in philosophy and English literature. But you know we're at the same time. It's worth noting that that Edgar Rice Burroughs does a, a good job of maintaining that that balance. He makes him a, a very capable man, makes him a mortal man. And, you know, with the exception of, like you said, he, there's a couple mysterious things. Uh, I, I really like the way the prologue ends in the fact that, you know, um, Edgar Rice Burroughs is his nephew. He has buried his, he's buried his uncle and he puts him in this crypt or tomb or, you know, whatever, mausoleum. And they lock it, but the only way to unlock it is from the inside, you know. And it kind of like, whoa, what's going on there kind of thing. Yeah, but, so, uh, so be, before the story even even uh, begins, we know we know how it how it ends. We we know that Carter eventually returns to Earth, and he's buried in this in this crypt. Um, but we we suspect that, that that that's not the end of the story for him. Uh, but but he he leaves the story of his of his time on Mars in in the form of of a journal, and and he 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 gives it to Burroughs. And tells him not to publish it for uh, 21 years, I believe. And so that's 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 the vehicle by by which we are we are being uh, pre- presented the story. Uh, Burroughs is simply carrying out his uncle's uh, last will and will and testament. Uh, and this and this um, sort of uh, frame story, from from having read some of Burroughs. Uh, Later works would would carry on. Burroughs frequently starts stories by talking about himself, uh, and the, the the story that that we get is 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 being told to him by by uh, someone else. It's presented as as truth or fact. Yeah. Um. So yeah, um, John Carter is is very uh, unabashed uh, male power fantasy in in a time when. Uh, you could you could get away with that sort of thing without without uh, any reservations whatsoever. He's he's strong. He's athletic. Uh, he he fights. He's he's he loves fighting. He's, he's naked he's all the time. Naked all the time. He's he's courageous, but he's he's also humble. You know he 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 seems like he is he is uh, the 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 perfect man. Um, I don't. I don't know that I. I found him uh, mortal so much. Uh, I. I was certainly never uh, afraid for him. Although he was. He was certainly uh, afraid for for himself many times. Um, what do What do we think of of 
the the language of this of this story because um you know it's this this was written you know a uh, uh, hundred years ago um and and obviously the, the you know the the way people people talked back then was 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 you know probably somewhat somewhat different from how how I would converse with you right now but definitely Burroughs Burroughs seems to be writing in an even in an even more or he 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 seems to be trying to evoke an even more um archaic epic style of writing his his writing's very uh bomb- bombastic right people people speak in this in this very um um what would you call it uh purpley way yeah no i um, I see what you're saying you know, they don't they don't use one word where 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 ten would would suffice <laughs> they're, they're always you know puffing up their their chest and saying thee and thou and lo what what ho what 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 have you sir yeah, actually, it it always struck me as very southern. You know, I, one of the, one of the first uh, speeches that that John Carter makes, uh, he's I, I think he's uh, he's he's uh, defending uh, the honor of uh, Dejah Thoris, who we'll 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 get to later. But after after he he makes this grandiose speech, uh, speech, uh, he says, "I I have never deigned to bombast before in in my life." And then he spends the rest of the book bombasting at every chance <laughs> at every chance he he gets. What do what do what do you think of this? Well, I I think, you know, first of all, I th- I think that was a style of language back then, particularly among as we've already uh, mentioned this book was considered more of a romance than science fiction. Um he was trying to play the the Southern Gentleman, which is in line with how other samples of of writing and movies and things like that of how they talked, whether or not they really talked that way, I don't know. But but you know, it was in line with how people imagined that you know these pseudo aristocratic Southern gentlemen might speak. Um, you're correct in the sense that it's I think bombastic is a great word. I you know it's if you read the other works, which I'm you know as as this podcast. Uh, the whole sur- sole purpose of it is to read the other works and appendix in. You'll notice that this is not unlike other um, other prose that is written by authors of the same period. This might be a little more flowery than, say, Robert E. Howard, but you know, definitely in in vein of the same expectations. Mm. And I would I would I would urge to to anyone listen who who, who wants to be a part of you know our reading reading along with us you know do do not be be uh turned off by uh old styles of 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 writing even even though it can it can be sometimes uh hard hard to get through uh i i i i got a little tired of it uh towards the end possibly because i was i was reading the um or i was i was having it narrated to me by the by the audiobook um and the and the uh the the uh, narrator uh, was was appropriately uh, let's say let's say uh, appropriately uh, mellow melodramatic. Um, <laughs> you almost have to be. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's yeah, yeah. All right. So then we then we get we we get to Mars itself, and we're quickly introduced to the Green Martians. Now we're we're, we're introduced to the Green Martians right after John Carter has just been chased by American Indians. Uh, and I think, I think, um, 
Burroughs, Burroughs uh, portrays uh, American Indians, um, shall we say, not not very sensitively. Um, <laughs> this this is true. Uh, he he, I mean, I I I don't really know what the social norm was at the time, uh, but he 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 suggests that uh, Indians will uh, kidnap white people uh, for no reason other than to to torture them uh, because they love torture. And they're just they're just evil, wicked, bar- barbaric, savage people. Yeah, savages. That's exactly that's the word I would use. He portrays them as simple savages. Right. So that's that's how Burroughs talks about a a real Earth race that that he that that he should maybe possibly know something about since he lives on the same continent with them. Uh, and then then we we get to Mars, where uh, Burroughs knows everything about these races because he created them. And so uh, the Green Martians are, are the first race on Mars that we're introduced to. And they're, they're these giant green people with six arms, well, six, six limbs, uh, four arms and, and two legs. And they've, they've got kind of bug-like heads. Yeah, I, I, I especially appreciated the way he described the way their eyes moved and things like that. Very, uh, and actually, if you've seen the movie, which you, you'd already mentioned you didn't. But I, actually, I, I have not yet. But, you know, I have, and, and despite all the problems with the movie that we won't discuss in this podcast, I think their de- depiction of the, um, what are they called, the Thorok? All of a sudden, I, the, the name uh, escapes. The Thark. Thark, that's, thank that's you. That's the name of, of, the, of the tribe. Thank you, the Thark. Uh, I, I, I imagined them exactly the way the movie portrayed them, almost uh, praying mantis I guess you might say, except with instead of the except obviously. more more lizard than than insect. Yeah, yeah, so, kind of kind of both. You know the way their the way their eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually lizard is a good one, almost like a Gila monster's eyes, with sort of yeah lizard like exterior and the six limbs and things like that. Yeah. So since since we since this, this this is a uh, Dungeons and Dragons podcast, and we're we're discussing how these books are the inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons. Right away, I think of the Thrycreen. Of of Dark Sun. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Even even though Dark Sun came, you know, much later in in D and D's history, and it was probably not uh, created by by Gary Gary Gygax. Uh, as as you read uh, Burroughs' uh, Mars books, you can you you can definitely see parallels between the the uh, desolate dying world of Mars and the and the desolate dying world of uh, Arrakis. That sounds uh, familiar. I, I, Dark Sun is actually yeah, yeah, probably one of the probably the setting I'm least familiar with. Um, uh, Dark Sun also draws heavily from from Dune, which is which is not on Gary Gygax's list. But um, all right, so in 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 contrast to the uh, American Indians, uh, the the uh, Green Men of of Mars are are also this savage, uh, bar- barbaric people. Um, they lack any sort of technology except what they've stolen from uh, the Red Men. Uh, but he he also he doesn't portray them as inherently evil. They 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 have a s- sense of society. They have a sense of of justice. They're 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 very honorable in in respect to their laws. Um, even though they, they do also, you know, enjoy killing and torturing people, 
like everyone else on on Mars uh, seems seems to um, is 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 it it, it it almost seems like Burroughs is more fair to the green Martians than, than he is to the the Indians I would yeah I would say that's true uh, you know one of the things I did like about this the opening part of this book and about the the society of the the green men is or I should say his treatment of the green men is that he actually kind of gives a reason for their violence that is primarily that because Mars is a reason resource desolate planet that is dying and resources are so scarce that consequently life is uh, very hard just from the environment. So consequently the fact that um, war and things like this happen so often between the tribes and, and the, mm-hmm. you know, the, other, the other societies, the green men have very little pity or compassion because, well, the world is not pity, pitiful or compassionate. You know, the world, if, if we don't mm-hmm. kill you, the world will, the, Absolutely. You know, the, the, the savages. And also it's like, they don't bemoan the loss of someone who dies because that means, Hey, more resources, more scarce resources for the remaining people. So yeah, I, I, I thought that was, it, it's almost like he put more thought into it about why the ecology and the anthropology of the society was the way it was rather than just writing it as you know what i need a noble savage in my plot and these guys fit the bill and they're you know they're he actually gave a reason for it which you know whether it be technically accurate or whether it be you know even justifiable i don't know but at least he put thought into it and and this 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 world building is is one of the things that i i like most about about uh this this uh story uh more than more than 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 the 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 characters and and the the action i like i like the way that burrows uh uh constructs a world in his in his head and and you know thinks it thinks it through uh logically and and you said you said the word uh ecology which is something that we used to have in monster manuals and and we don't so so much any anymore but uh, this this kind of world building is is what influenced many many fantasy writers and many dungeon masters to to make 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 their make make their make their own own worlds, you know, make them you know out of out of their their own uh, imaginations, but but also also make them make 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 sense at least, uh, you know, or or make them in internally consistent. Yeah, I like that internally consistent. So right away, the you know the very first story that that we're reading for this for this podcast shows shows great world building, and I and I and I, and I like that. Also, at 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 one point, uh, Burroughs seems to seems to vilify the Green Martians for um, their they 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 don't have private property. They 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 own everything as a as a community, and that that struck me as as odd. And I wondered if it was an if 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 it wasn't like an 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 early, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, a critique of 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 Marxism and and you know communism. Even even though this was this was uh. decades be- before the Red Scare, uh, Burrow Burrow seems seems to take you know, issue with, 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 with the fact that, that 
the the green Martians don't don't own anything, which which I found uh, strange. Yeah, no, that's that's actually a good point because Karl Marx, of course, had already established his philosophies by then. You know, his writings and things like that. And uh, the Bolshevik Revolution was only a few years away, so that that is actually not a bad uh, theory. My guess is, and what I had thought was that it sounded more like many of the societies. Uh, um, the pygmy societies in in Africa, things like that, where you know they just they live in small tribes. They don't have you know there's not a lot to own, so obviously ownership is ownership is considered outside the well being because you're more of the community than the uh, than self, just simply for survival or you know what have you. Um, I, that's the way I pictured it. However, that's a that's a good case. I hadn't I hadn't thought of. Um, his critique of Marxism, perhaps, as as being a motivator for, uh, you know, the the Green Men, you know, the, the term "noble savage" is often applied to his mm-hmm. depiction of them, and you know that's something in in really in both, like you said, he they have a distinct lack of ownership and property among things. In fact, there's there's a passage in there where he describes, you know, he ends up over the course of his association with the Green Men. Uh, ends up becoming a something of a minor chief among them, mm-hmm. and he therefore has to uh, take stewardship over the possessions of these former chiefs. But as he says, he says, "I I never considered them mine. They weren't, you know, they weren't property. They were just something over which I had you know, stewardship or responsibility until such time as a younger person or younger uh, Thark would come along and you know take them either take them from me or be given them for responsibility type type reasons." You know, it, it's talking about the way he treats the green men. I, I was kind of surprised, or I'd forgotten when I from the time I first read this. He goes back and forth. You know, sometimes he he shows a lot of admiration for them. You know, he sort of he, yeah. he talks up their their noble qualities. Like he can't then, make 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 up 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 his 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 mind. Yeah, you know, it's almost like sometimes he's looking for something good to say about them, and then he turns right around uh, and you know basically criticizes them for, you know, a number of practices being, of course, different from his, you know, his perception of a, of a, of a noble society. Um, you know, of course, this really takes off when he first meets uh, Deja Thorin, who, we'll, who we'll, we'll, we'll get to in a, in a, in a moment. I right. Think, I think, I think some of this uh, back and forth can be, can be chalked up to the fact that Burroughs was stumbling his way through, through his, like the first story he had ever written as a as a writer that yeah. that he was writing to make money and and he thought was mostly trash at the at the time um so i i don't, I don't think he was paying serious serious attention to um consistency at at at, at that time although he he, he he probably was later yeah but, well he certainly established many conventions i mean this work as you, as you put it is you know it was his first and it was one of the first popular works of pulp that mm-hmm. was done, and so you know many of his work, many of his things that he does are were seminal, and consequently, looking back on them, it's easy to say, you know what, this is this is, you know, obviously not good writing, or he could have done better. Absolutely, but you know, if you yeah. take it for what it is, it's his first work in a in a in a basically uh, very new genre. He actually did very well. And when you, when you when you consider how how most of us tell stories at the gaming table you know we're we're spinning the story from our heads as it as it comes to us so you know in in a in a in a sense uh burroughs is writing a story like a like a gm he's he's just coming up with the most fantastic uh crap (laughs) that that 
that he can spin out of out of his head as as fast as 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 he can write it, and it just so happens to be entertaining, which is which is amazing. Um, so from from the Green Man, uh, we we move on to the Red Man, and the first Red Man that we are introduced to is a woman, uh, the incomparable Deja Thoris. Uh, Deja Thoris. The what? It, the, the incomparable. Oh, uh, oh! I my bandwidth must have put. What did you think I said? The humpable. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I think there's a little bit of that later on in the book, but uh, it, interestingly, it's, it's, dis, dis, despite the fact that that everyone is is naked through, throughout the book, I guess just because of cultural expectations of of the time, uh, very little is 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 said about you know sex or sexual. Uh, 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 desire. Um, so it's- I, I think that's part of the, <laughs> the, the nobility. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like the, uh, noblesse of, well, not the noblesse of bleach. That's the wrong term. Um, uh, co- it's courtly like, romance. Yeah. Courtly romance. Yes. I believe, I, I believe the, the, the nudity is simply to show off the ideal. Cause you know, everybody is right. Buff the, the, and, the, the Greek I- ideal. Yeah, the Greek ideal, but then of course the courtly romance shows their you know their morality, their moral nobility, and so you know it, to them it's just incidental that clothing is not present rather than being you know, in fact, well we'll we'll get to what Deja Thorne says later about that I'm sure. All right. Uh, yeah, we're 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 getting a, a ahead of ourselves. So true. Sorry. Um, only, only a, a, a couple days uh, into Carter's time among among uh, the Green Men, uh, we're, we're introduced to the Red Men, and they, they come along in these in these floating ships, and we see right away that that the Red Men are, are more like like Earth humans. Uh, they they have uh, te- technology. They're they're probably the the more dominant race uh, upon Mars, at least for this book. We'll. We'll learn about other races in, in, in future books, but we're not we're not there yet. Um, and so the green men just shoot the crap out of these ships uh, and manage to uh, capture one. And they only capture one prisoner because they've killed everybody else. And the prisoner is Dejah Thoris, the princess of a city called Helium. Um. And Deja Thoris is a young, red-skinned woman. I and mean, she, she's not actually red-skinned. She's she's more copper or, or or bronze. Actually, probably the color of the American Indians that uh, Burroughs was just writing about uh, at, at the beginning of the story, which is which is interesting to me. And right away, uh, John Carter falls in love with this woman. Um, and it's 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 a a chaste, you know, almost childish uh, fairy tale, you know, love. He 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 describes the the physical perfection of of her her body, of course, because she's naked, as is everyone on on Mars. But that's that's about where the sexuality ends. It's it's never brought up again. There's there's a lot of awkward hand holding and 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 kissing and, uh, would you would you would you say that 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 the romance uh, Jay is is really just kind of awkward and childish from from this point forward? Oh oh, very much so. In fact, um, I I think reading this, 
I can see where George Lucas got his ideas of romance for the Phantom Menace <laughs> and, the, and the prequels. It, you know, it really is a, as you said, awkward is a very good word. For yeah, they, they're they're um, like you said. She has a light reddish copper color. Was the color of her skin mm-hmm. against which the crimson glow of her cheeks and the ruby of her beautifully molded lips shone with a strangely enhancing effect. And then he goes on to describe that she was naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, pretty much. But yeah, no, it's like you said. She's a, she is the embodiment of physical perfection. In fact, he even calls her um, to the earthly women of my past life. You know, things like that. So, yeah, he definitely notes the the similarities and yet the differences between the two. And really, the 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 defining uh, characteristic of Dejah Thoris is probably her her no, no, nobility. And and as a as a, I'm stumbling over words. As a second secondary to. to to that is 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 her her haughtiness right yeah i i would say he he uses the word civilized uh fairly frequently to describe her she was she was civilized whereas the the tharks and the other green men are uh savages even though they have like you we've already talked about they have their own moral code right hers is much more in line with what his is and consequently, he sees her. You know, he sees he has a kinship with her right away. Not only because of her beauty, but because her morals, her morality aligns much more closely with his. And you know, but I mean, other 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 than than being um, very very proud. I mean, I don't I don't really know that that she has much. I I, I here here here's where where I I wish we we had a had a woman on on the show to to give her her her. her <laughs> Her her perspective on this because I I, I know of a, know of a few who could who could um, say say these things much much better 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 than 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 I could but she's she's pretty much what we call a, a cipher like she's she's mostly you know devoid of personality so that so that the reader can project whatever personality he 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 desires on on her. Would you would you would you agree or you know I had never thought of it like that but I mean she is she is definitely a secondary character I mean you know as is whether you know at the time of the writing I mean she 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 basically fills the heroine role which in many cases as you know whether it be a western or a planetary romance they're basically uh, a prop for the hero. Uh, you know, as well as being a, a, a mulligan, I, or what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Not mulligan, but um, MacGuffin. Because with an M, it's a story device. MacGuffin. MacGuffin. Thank you. Yeah. You know, she she moves the story forward as well as you know providing uh, motivation and you know ample companionship for you know for the hero. Yeah, but you're right. She's she's not what we would call by any stretch of the imagination of. Uh, a true feminist hero of, a, of a, a, or or even even a fully fleshed out character. Um, yeah, yeah, I would agree. Although I, I mean, make, even I could make a joke about flesh there, but I would right. So. <laughs> I mean, even even Carter, I mean, is is pretty one dimensional most of the time, and 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 he's our narrator. We're we're inside his head, true. so. Uh, I, I I guess she's she's as much of a fleshed out character as as any of the characters in this in this story. Um, 
let's let's all right so uh but before we 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 get to um the the red man civilizations uh let's 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 talk a bit a bit about about the creatures because there's there's some interesting creatures on 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 mars we're, we're introduced to the to the white apes uh which is apparently the the only mammal on on mars and there's there's any number of you know giant four-legged legged beasties i mean uh uh, Carter has has a giant dog named named Woola with like the the head of a frog and three rows of tusks and many legs and there's there's all sorts of giant animals that they that 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 that, that they ride on which was which was your favorite um you know I, well like you said the white apes are pretty much taken from uh you know the only mammal i i mean but Everything I, I liked Wula just simply because you know he provides, I, I guess you know pr- he provides the sidekick component of the of the book at least uh, the first part of it until later on when we meet some other characters, mm-hmm. but uh, you know at the same time he he has something of a I say a minor role in comic relief not because there's really yeah. a lot there in fact uh, this is where the movie starts to pollute my. My recollection because you know even though I just read the book uh, you know for this podcast having watched the movie Wula is is very much a, a, a comic relief element within the within the movie and and you can see parts of that within I don't think Burroughs necessarily intended it that way simply because maybe comic relief wasn't a, a literary vehicle at the time mm-hmm. but you know you definitely oh, I think see I think comic relief has, has been a literary vehicle since since there was literature um, yeah, I, I guess I should say at least not in his mind. I don't think that's what he was intending. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the 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 idea of a a gigantic ugly monster that that is is basically a a a dog is in inherently funny. And you know, whenever Wool is you know doing something dog like, it 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 serves to deflate some of of the seriousness of 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 the drama. So. Yeah, I mean he's 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 very much much uh, uh, comic relief, and you know gives John Carter something to do other than killing people, which which is awesome, <laughs> which which, yeah. which this this st- story needs. Um, yeah. Uh, the the white apes remind me of a of a very specific monster in Dungeons and Dragons called the called the Girolon, which is which is a gigantic. Uh, four-armed uh, white ape. Is that from the Fiend Folio? Um, I, Jay, I, I came in it basically in third edition, so all the monsters. I don't. Yeah. I don't. Huh. I don't. I, I don't know where where the Girolon originally showed up, but it's 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 been in every every edition. It's a big four-armed yeah. white ape. So that's that's what I immediately thought of when I when I when 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 the white ape showed up. Yeah. Although I think I think the Martian white apes are are more the size of like hill giants and stone giants. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely as are as are the Tharks. Yeah, yeah, every, everything's very very big. I mean, it has multiple legs. That was yeah. everything, or I should not multiple, but has more legs and and arms than than we do, with the exception of obviously the the red people. Right, and and, and no, no, um, no, I, you know, I yeah. Oh, I was going to say the the thoats. I guess that's how you say it. Thoat, thoat, or thoat. 
I don't the, know. The the thoats, one of the one of the riding beasts. Like yeah, they're, they're basically horses, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're you know they're beasts of burden, domesticated. I thought it was you know interesting, of course, that here is a civilization of green men who, granted, you know they have no really concept of kindness due to their environment, and John Carter comes in, treats these you know both Woola and the thoats with kindness in what we'd call a civilized manner, mm. and obvi- you know immediately you know he has complete control of these domesticated animals and, you know, he is able to, to preach his, his, uh, his philosophy of treating animals and, and husbandry to, to the Tharks. And, you know, he becomes obviously very, a great chief among them, not only due to his prowess of the fist, but his, uh, his gentlemanly conduct also earns him rewards. So, yeah, but, um, yeah, definitely. I, as far as the creatures go, you know, lots of weird ones, but of course they all seem to harken back to some earthly equivalent. Once again, showing that you know the the parallels he was drawing were were very. He, he, you know, Mars is not truly an alien world. It is very much like a an Earth like world with similar you know domesticated animals and pets. Or and, even 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 it's it's what our world may be like in the in the future sometime. Right. Correct. A harbinger of things to come. All right, so that's that's very chilling. Um, okay, so after after a, a series of adventures among uh, the the green men, during which there's there's lots of uh, fighting and killing, um, John Carter eventually comes among the red men, and unlike the green men, these 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 red men they they have cities. Um, they have technology. They 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 apparently have restaurants because at one point he stops at a restaurant where he's served food by pushing buttons, which you know d- despite the fact that resources are apparently scarce on Mars, so much so that that people you know won't won't miss you if you're dead because it means mo- more more food for them. Uh, they 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 have restaurants. But actually, actually, let's let's back up a bit because be, before he even comes to the cities of the Red Men, he goes to the Atmosphere Factory. Yeah, that was interesting. And yeah, so apparently there's one building on all of Mars, and, and, and two people are responsible for for ma- maintaining it. That that pumps atmosphere for the entire planet. Uh, oh, and and also, um, everyone on Mars apparently has has mind powers. Yeah, well, and that's another thing is he develops telepathy, even though he's from another world. Yeah, so he, so this this Earth man comes to Mars apparently by astral projection, and he discovers everyone has mind powers, and he can use the mind powers too, and he can read everyone else's mind, but no one can read his mind. And that's that sounds like first edition psionics to me. And that's that's another thing, you know. Just just as we're we're not told why John Carter is apparently immortal, we're not told why he can't remember his birth, or why he can astrally travel on a whim. We're we're not really told why John Carter can manifest this mental power that's apparently superior to everyone else on the planet. He just can, cause he cause he's awesome. <laughs> um. So, and and we're we're also told that um, the the uh, Mar- Martian technology is based on two colors of the light spectrum that that we don't that we don't have. 
um, which which we, we would probably today refer to as as probably ultraviolet and infrared light. But uh, uh, Burroughs describes the custodian of the atmosphere factory as, as having this this giant plate with with nine gems on it, and and seven of the gems are the colors of the rainbow that that we know, and there there's two other gems that that are colors that like don't exist on 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 Earth. They're they're beyond like the normal spectrum. Yeah, in fact, isn't one of them responsible for propulsion? I believe. Yeah, one of them one of them is 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 responsible for how they have flying ships. I didn't I didn't really follow his explanation because it, it seemed like a bunch of bull honky to me. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it is. Yeah, <laughs> the ray of propulsion. That's what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently these these light rays can also be used to make substances that uh, power the the aircraft that they have and also provide atmosphere. Uh, and the atmosphere factory has doors on it that can only be opened by telepathy, and uh, Carter's able able to to learn the secret code by reading the the custodian's mind, even though the the custodian can't read read his mind, and the custodian wants to wants to kill him because he's a he's a stranger. But John Carter escapes. It's 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 it, it's a weird episode, but it uh, it uh, be, becomes important later. Yeah, it does. I actually, you know, I thought it was funny is he feeds him and then he wants to kill him. I'm like, why don't you just save the food? If food is so scarce, why don't you save the food and then just kill him? You know. Well, I think I think this this man wanted to learn who Carter was and and evaluate whether or not he was he was a threat before he he just do, does away with him. Um, yeah, yeah. So so finally we 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 get to uh the red man and we have we we have two cities primarily we we have Zodanga and we have Helium and Zodanga's clearly the clearly the 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 bad guys or at least the 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 an, antagonists and and Helium's the the good guys even even though I mean it 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 seems kind of morally am- ambiguous, at at least to me. No one's no one's really good or bad on Mars. It's just who's who's on your side and who's in in your way. I mean, would yeah. You- oh yeah, no, I totally agree. And uh, you know, and what's funny is for all the nobility and the civil civil uh, civilized manner that uh, Deja Thoris presents in her. You know, she she gives these speeches about kindness and all these things to. Mm-hmm. You know, wallet to the chieftain of the the Thark, so I, his name escapes me at the moment. Uh, Tars Tarkas. Uh, actually, he was the sub chieftain, wasn't he? She, but anyway, Lorska something or other. I, uh, I Loris Loris Tomol. Yes. Anyways, you know that was while while she was captive to him. You know, she gives right. these a couple, at least one I can recall. You know, it, speech. It's 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 this very hippie like you know, couldn't we all live together yeah. in, in 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 peace, in peace and and, yeah. and and harmony. And then you see the red men civilizations, and they're they're just as warlike as the green men. Yeah, they just only... have bigger and better weapons. Exactly. Well, I mean, the even even the Tharks have guns that can shoot what three three hundred miles. Oh, was it that long? Oh, I don't re- I don't remember that. They're, they're... I just I remember the radium bullets that explode yes. in light. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was interesting. I, his little byline was, was, "I think it's radium because they were originally hieroglyphs, but I think it's." 
you know, I think they're radium because the, I think the ammunition is radium based. Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything about chemistry. I don't know if radium would really do that. Well, single... that was that's what he writes in the book. Right. I, I don't. But that's what he writes in the book, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Another pop science using kind of... using the, the the science of his time to, to yeah, describe exactly. these. But you know the. The the green men have have stolen these these guns from 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 the red men. So the 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 red men have have guns and and battleships which which they float you know above the surface of Mars and the 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 story ends with Carter leading a a, a horde of of green men that that he's managed to u- unite under the one. Green Martian, who is his his friend Tars Tars Tarkas, and he 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 just leads a, a horde of these people that we've previously described as savages against the civilized city of Zodanga for really no good reason other than the rulership of Zodanga is is holding Dejah Thoris captive. Yeah, yeah, and and <laughs> sort of a sort of a Troy scenario. Greek and a Troy we've, scenario. We've previously again, yeah. been 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 told by by Zodangan citizens that the people of Zodanga don't even like their their ruler. Like the war he's fighting with helium, is is an unpopular war. They would they would rather have peace. So the people of Zodanga don't really seem like they're that bad. They just happen to be in John Carter's way. Yeah, well, and you know the fact he you know there's that scene where he kills the four helpless guards just because they're there. Which I mean, you know, that's that's not necessarily uncharacteristic of many fantasy novels, but you know, they're just he needs to get in and talk to Dejah Thoris. And well, I mean, there. He, he 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 told them to step aside, and they drew their swords and 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 attacked him. Yeah. So you know, I mean, today you know our 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 heroes shy away from killing, and you know, if if you're Batman or whatever, you you go out of your way to incapacitate rather than rather than than kill. But this this was a simpler time. Um, but I mean, right, right after he, he kills them, I, I think the, in the narration, he says, I would gladly have depopulated the entire planet if they stood between me and my, my, my love. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a pretty violent statement right, right there. It doesn't sound, yeah. sound very noble or civilized. No, not really. But whatever. It's fantasy. Well, and it's fantasy at the turn of the 20th century, or the beginning of the 20th century. So, yeah, it definitely, you know, I compared, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't, obviously, I don't think, yeah, Jules Verne is not listed in Appendix N, but in many ways, his stories are much more, they're more about the science and things like that than they are, I mean, granted, the science mm-hmm. is very, very primitive, but you're right. This is pretty much, in fact, in 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 you know preparing for this podcast in this episode, many times the parallels between westerns and and the Princess of Mars came up. You know, as far as being you know the stereotypes, the the flow of the story, the the characterizations, and things like that. And that's really what you get. You know, you get the 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 savages versus the civilizations, and even you know even the civilizations. You got the bad sheriff and the good sheriff, and you know and things like that. So yeah, it's. It is a very, um, uh, I don't want to say stereotypical because this book was so, you know, the pulp genre, this book was so new within the pulp genre. But at the same time, he, he borrowed heavily from other other genres and crafted something mm-hmm. you know, at the time was fairly unique. You know, the 
you know, I, one of the things I thought was fairly amazing was, you know, they, they're describing all this technology and they have a ray or not, excuse me, a ray. Did I say a ray? I meant a screen, which, you know, allows them to see any other planet. Yeah. I, I, yeah that, that, that was kind of those, those, that one, one of those one-off statements that, that really didn't seem to make a, a, a lot of sense. You know, they can, they can apparently view what's happening on, on any other planet as, as clearly as, as, as you would, you would watch something on, on yeah, television on yeah. and they can't well, understand why human beings wear hats. Yeah. Or well, clothes in general, but particularly hats. Yeah. It, it's very interesting. Very interesting. But, uh, yeah, they, 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 they can't use. Yeah, you're right. Their, it was just kind of one off things. <laughs> They, they they can't use their their amazing advanced science to figure out the mystery of why human beings wear clothes. Yeah, well, it gets could it, cold. Could it be because there's an atmosphere? We've we've got I don't yeah. know. Whatever. Well, you know, it's <laughs> I I wonder. I mean, this is just a, a speculation on my part. But you know, movies were uh, well, they were rel- they were actually very new at the time. You know, the the technology had, was just starting to be developed and and hadn't come to market in fruition yet you know there weren't full-time theaters and things like that but i wonder if uh, burroughs might have seen a movie or two and and thought you know hey this if i extrapolated what this technology could do in the future you know we end up with what essentially are star trek view screens which i mm-hmm. i thought was fairly prescient even though you know and that they and appear- that, that kind of thinking at, at least that's that's a hallmark of of science fiction taking taking yes. te- technology that is just coming into into being today and and imagining how it will affect our lives in the in the future um but as 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 you said um it the the story also borrows from 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 westerns it also borrows from travelogues in the sense that it's a story about a person traveling from one place to another and the stuff that that happens to him and it's it's not it's, it's not constructed as you know, a, a a a plot with a with a beginning, a middle, and an and an, and an end. So much. Um, I'm I'm wondering, since since the 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 conflict that we're seeing so so much of here is between civilization and and savagery. If if this isn't one of the origins of the alignment system in early D and D, which, as you know, uh, was law versus chaos. Be, be before the alignment system had had good and evil and you know lawful good lawful evil neutral good whatever it was it was it was law versus ver, versus chaos do you do you think we're we're seeing law versus chaos in this story yes i know but that is a very good uh, very good observation I, I it's funny because if i had to say that this book tended to idealize one i might even say it idealizes the the chaos part or at least the the less civilized, which is tend to one would tend to think would be order and law, then you know. So that's a, that's a very interesting observation, Jeff. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, I, and I wonder if you know that's partially where they uh, took you know they 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 took some of these literary things that they got from the books and appendix in this one being a prime example, and said, you know, hey, we need an alignment system and law and chaos figures more prevalently even even in. Um, the mid editions, you know, even like first edition, second edition, and third edition, law and chaos were much more opposed than good and evil. I mean, you had the nine nine point system, but quite often it was law versus chaos rather than good versus evil. And and this is this is my 
ignorance because I, I I came into into D and D so late, but I, I I only remember ever having the 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 nine point system, and I I only know through through reading that it it was just law and chaos to start with. So I don't I don't remember. All all you know, all, all, I, all I remember is that Greyhawk had the 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 wind dukes and and there there was some there was some conflict in in greyhawk history be, be, between the wind dukes and uh a bunch of and 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 some chaos demons uh you know i i'm sure i've read that i have actually i have the original greyhawk that was published in the folder it was a almost like a uh, folio I have that, but I haven't read it in several years, and I don't remember that, but that sounds very plausible. Um, in fact, I'm sure, not so much in this book, but in several of the other appendix books, in particular, I think the Fawford and Gray Mouser series by mm. uh, Fritz Lieber, I think his name is. Yeah. You'll see the influences on Greyhawk, but anyways, that's a, for a future podcast. Right, so. yeah. That's, but that's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Lieber, Lieber is way, way down the list. We, we we get to the end of the story and we see that um, Carter has has climbed the social hierarchy of of Mars. He's he's gone from being a, a, a stranger to a chieftain among the green green Martians to finally uh, winning the hand of a a princess of of helium and and you know the 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 honor and um yeah he becomes a prince of mars right he 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 becomes a a big shot among the among among basically both 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 races both both races love and and respect him uh and then we we flash to uh 10 years later uh dejah thoris has laid an egg which i find disturbing yeah (laughs) Yeah. Well, and the, yeah, I mean, she's laid an egg that is his child, you know. Yeah. How that works that we know. Yeah, Thankfully, I, he didn't speculate on how that works other than to say it was simply happened. And <laughs> we'll gladly leave that to the imagination and of the reader. So we, we, we leave the story uh, almost as inexplicably as we've come into it because all of a sudden someone has, has assassinated the custodian of the atmosphere plant. Uh, and, and we, it, it's never explained. I don't think why anyone would want to assassinate the guy that keeps everyone alive, but it's, it's, it's happened. And, uh, the, we're, we're told that the atmosphere will completely fail within, within three days and everyone's going to die. So naturally, what does our hero do? He waits until the very last moment. <laughs> I of, know. of day three <laughs> to leap into into action because he suddenly remembers that that he's got the key to the to the lock that will get everyone into that atmosphere building and so he he gets on you know uh one of the flying machines and and races towards the atmosphere <laughs> building and there's yeah. there's people on outside who've been trying to get inside for three days <laughs> well, well, John Carter's been sitting around doing doing nothing, and with with his last dying breath, he he opens up the doors to the atmosphere factory, and you know some that. someone else crawls inside to turn to turn the the machine on, but John Carter dies, or at least his Martian body dies, and mm-hmm. then he wakes up back on 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 Earth. 
and he's he's back in the Arizona cave, and he turns around, and we finally see what was what was behind him, which we didn't know about in in the prologue. It, it was this skeleton of a witch, and she's holding, you know, some some kind of insect. Like we're we're not even like told what's really going on. There's just like a skeleton of an of an old woman, and she's she's holding something, and there's a bunch of skeletons hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. And John Carter basically gets out of there, and, and we never hear anything about about that again. And ten years later, he he dies a natural death of of old age, apparently, and is is buried. And twenty one years after that, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs publishes his journal, which is why we we have this story. It, this is one of those things where the movie and, and it brought a lot of criticism from many people. Though in reality. And, and and since, you know, it's been years since I've read the other books, so there may be elements of the other books in the movie, but the movie tries to explain this a little better. And they present a few new characters and some villains mm-hmm. who sort of outline, one, how John Carter is able to, to transport, and two, um, you know, they, they provide technology that explains many of things uh, like, you know, why someone would want to assassinate the, the person in the atmosphere plant. And other things like that. It's it's an interesting way to try and resolve some of these things because, uh-huh. you, you know, here in the book, you know, like you said, it's 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 sort of this mystical astral projection. We don't know why. You know, is it because of John Carr solely? Because you know, but you know, they they try and explain that a little more. In some ways, I I appreciated it because it, it heightened the internal consistency mm-hmm. uh, as as you mentioned before but at the same time it sort of it's almost like a midichlorian effect you know it, by trying to explain some of it it takes away some of the charm of 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 the book so i i i think it's it's it it shows the the difference between modern sensibilities in in storytelling and and what was what was acceptable at the at the time i mean these 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 days we we want a story that that makes sense, you know, where where there's there's uh, foreshadowing that that later you know pay, pay, pays off, where where you know there's you know people have real real motivations for for doing doing things, and you know, I don't I don't think going back and trying to imagine, you know, why. Um, why you know? Tr- I I I I don't think going back and trying to, to make sense of some of these strange elements is nece- is necessarily bad. Uh, it's it's but it, it's as you said it's a, it, it's it's a fine line between fleshing out the story and just adding uh, uh, midichlorian uh, ex- explanation. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. So what what's your uh, what's your impression overall of of the book? I mean, would you? Who would you recommend this book to? Or more precisely, would you recommend this book as uh, as an example of, or 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 as inspiration for a D and D game, for instance? Absolutely. Um, I think I think there's there's excellent uh, world building uh, go, uh, go, going on here. Burroughs uh, presents many. Uh, fantastic elements that that are that that are um, ec- 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 exciting. Uh, you know, D and D as it when when it started, um, 
was was a game about exploration, right? You you went Correct. into an, an an unknown place, and your job was to was to map it out, and 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 find everything. And you know, you 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 couldn't just make make a knowledge check to know what something was. You 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 had to pick it up and poke it and and look at it. And I think by presenting the story of an explorer who goes to a strange planet where, where everything is, is strange and, and new to him, Burroughs kind of shows how that's supposed to play out. I would, I would recommend this story to anybody, um, regardless of whether or not you think it's a, it's a good story. Uh, I think it's it's a story that anyone who's interested in 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 fantasy and in Dungeons and Dragons and in in gaming uh, needs to read. Um, I mean, uh, as I said, I, you know, I I myself did not enjoy certainly every aspect of the story. I I, I found the bombastic language uh, got got you know tiresome uh, very quickly, and and of course it's very obvious that ideas about race and and sex at, at at the time are were 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 very different from uh our own however i ironically i think there's a lot of positive things uh about race in this story um as as I, well i agree actually i agree i, I agree mean, carter story. carter basically ends up uniting I mean, by 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 the end of the stories that we're we're going to read, Carter basically ends up uniting an an entire planet, you know, tra- transcending race, you know, be befriend, you know, it's 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 interesting that Burroughs refers to the green men of Mars as human, even even though they're they're fifteen feet tall and and have four arms and 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 lay eggs, he 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 calls them calls them human. So I mean, despite the fact that the story begins with Indians who apparently, you know, want to kidnap a white man just because they love torturing people, uh, I, I think it, it ends on a on a very positive note, and I think I think that reflects more of Burroughs' probably you know personal beliefs, whereas. His bit with the with the Indians was probably because he he started out, as we said way 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 in the beginning, trying to write a story to to make money. So he was probably portraying these these Indians as other other writers did because he thought that's what people expected, that's what people yeah. wanted. I agree. His 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 biography mentions that that he actually you know met Indians as as he was traveling the country working various odd jobs. So. It's it's not like he was he was a stranger to these people. No, that's true. But he, I, I don't know if he ever actually worked or lived in Arizona, where uh, you know where his, well, of course his uh, his hero is from all over, but primarily from Virginia and Arizona. Um, yeah, and, well, and, and even then he doesn't. You know, it's funny because in the books, in the book, he does not call them Indians. At least throughout the bulk of the book, or at least the, the section they're in, he says they're Apache. He names the tribe and says, "Now I have no idea if Apache one lived in Arizona. I have no idea what the, the Apache society was like. For all I know, they may have been. I doubt it. 
but you know, so even then he he doesn't paint such a broad swath of, of denigration towards the American Indian as much as he does a particular tribe within a particular area of the country. And you know, like I said, and, and like or I should say, like you said, that's probably because he was just meeting literary expectations. You know, this is what my audience expects because I'm in Arizona. I need a convenient villain upon which to jumpstart my story. Who's available? Ah, my readers know that Native Americans inhabit this area and that they are particularly warlike based on previous you know, information and consequently this is you know, how we proceed. Where, you know, like you said, this really shows how Princess of Mars is speculative fiction at its best. It, it shows you know, through, like you said, the bombastic and outlandish and, and larger-than-life machinations of the hero, he ends up representing the best of, or he ends up uniting the civilizations to hopefully represent the best of, quote-unquote, humanity within these different races and you know, providing for a common good. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I really like the way you tied it back into the game. Um, Hello, listeners. Uh, as you no doubt could tell, we were uh, having some problems with the sound quality on Jay's voice, and we couldn't figure out how to fix it, so we decided to end it end it here. Uh, thank you for listening to our first show. I apologize for the technical difficulties, but hopefully you listened all the way through. If you're hearing me now, you obviously did. Uh, we will be reading more books by Edgar Rice Burroughs in upcoming episodes. Specifically, for the month of May, we will be reading The Gods of Mars and The Warlord of Mars. That's right, I'm doing two books for one episode, because the storyline carries over from one to the other, so I thought it best to do it that way. Uh, we will be recording them sometime during the week of May the 26th. Next month, however, we will be reading The Book of Wonder by Lord Dunsany. This is a collection of 14 short stories, so it should be a quick and easy read. You can find the complete text of this book for free at Project Gutenberg, www.gutenberg.org. I believe it can be downloaded and read on a number of ebook readers. Uh, the recording for that will be sometime during the week of April 21st. To get more details or to volunteer, you can email Jeff Greiner, host of The Tome Show, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line. He will get those messages to me. Uh, the exact date of recording will depend on everyone's schedules. I will do my best to accommodate anyone who wishes to participate, so don't worry about your personal schedule being a factor. And if you want to read along with us and listen to our discussion when it comes out, you're welcome to do that as well, and be sure to let us know what you think. Again, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback on the show, email jeffgreiner at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line. You can visit The Tome Show's webpage at www.thetomeshow.com. My guest today was Jay Kint. You can listen to him and Jeff Greiner talk about RPGs on the RPG Circus podcast at rpgcircus.com. Read his blog at expertisedice.com. And you can message him on Twitter at, at icosahedron. 
Uh, this has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 1, A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Thanks for listening.